This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Well, hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is Nabil Mahmood calling in from Hawaii. Philip Copes from, uh, from Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. Who's got better weather now, David? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Atlanta, Georgia, good to be with you guys. David, thank you for joining us. Great to see you be a part of the Nomad Futurist. So let's, let's get started. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and how do you play in the data center space? All right. Well, I work for a large REIT called QTS. And, you know, probably like a lot of people my age, I didn't start off in the data center business. I I sort of accidentally ended up in the IT business. And I learned, uh, I got into gaming of all things, started building my own computers. I didn't want to have anything to do with computers. My dad was was a manager for IBM on the space shuttle. My brother was in the IT aerospace business, other members of my family. I didn't want anything to do with it, but I I ended up there and ended up working at the University of Texas, did that for about eight years. And then um, in 2004, I ended up going to work for what eventually became QTS uh, on the IT side and then in the co-location and data center space. And for a number of years till 2018, I was either in solution engineering or director of solution engineers or something related to that. And our chief revenue officer came to me in 2018 and said, and our CTO and said, hey, look, we're trying to expand what we're doing. We don't, you know, we would love to have somebody who's an evangelist that knows, you know, the industry has done this for a long time. And it's not necessarily an evangelist specifically about QTS products and services, but just our industry. You know, what do you like? What's interesting? And um, would you consider doing that? And first I thought they were punking me. I was like, sir, are you asking me when I like to travel around the country, give me a microphone. Nobody's going to judge my single lines. Nobody's going to give me a hard time about the accuracy of my solution. And I get to talk to other knuckleheads and argue about my opinion. Yeah, something like that. I'm in. (laughs) So easy decision. And so I've been doing that since, uh, gosh, exactly two years, since May of uh, 2018. So that's uh, that's kind of a circular way of how I got here, but that's what I'm doing now. So it was 2018, the first time you and I met in New York when we were on the same panel? Yeah. Yeah, it was. And it was, uh, that was the panel we did at the uh, district attorney's office or something like that. I can't remember got a little nervous going in there. I didn't know what what the statute of limitations were for some of my crimes, so I needed to do like some quick internet searches before I went in, but uh, and they made me a moderator. They let me get it the oh yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was pretty awesome. I, I assume it was the first time a panelist uh, was not given the opportunity to speak. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little harsh. No, we let everybody speak. Um, one thing that I want to say, so when Nabil and I were fantasizing about potentially co-hosting a podcast. The one picture that I had in my head was having a podcast and having David McCall on it. Oh, um, thank you. So, you know, it, and really the basis for it, and we've discussed it, we discussed this a little bit last week, was the idea that, 
You know, we wanted to provide a, a forum for interesting people to evangelize, which is, which is apparently your bread and butter these days, about our industry so that we showed them that this is a place where interesting people with interesting experiences come and, and, and try to make, you know, critical infrastructure sexy again. And who right. could I possibly call upon to, uh, to, ah. to show the sexiness of this industry than uh, than than David McCall. So I we're, wonder if, we're in if, trouble. Yeah, I wonder if if you um, had any thoughts on you would say to younger people thinking of of career paths and whether critical infrastructure is right for them or not. Well, I would expand it beyond critical infrastructure and just say the data center industry. And you know there are there are only a few industries that that are showing amazing growth in the world right now. And I think that, I mean, my perspective is, sort of my, my line of reasoning is, there is no idea on earth that doesn't live in a data center. For example, the formula for Coca-Cola used to be written down on a piece of paper and it's safe. It's in somebody's data center today, their data center, Amazon's, yours, mine, somebody's data center. Well, if that's true, if the ideas of the world live in a data center, then that makes data center some of the most valuable real estate uh, honor. And if you think of, I know all three of us have talked about this many times in the past, that the commodity of the whole world is data, right? We've had this discussion where, sure, some of Netflix's value is the content they, they make that we watch when we watch Ozark or Stranger Things or whatever. But the real value to their shareholders is the data that they're creating and that they can monetize and whatever. And so, Regardless of your industry, whether you're in the uh, legal industry, you're in critical infrastructure, you're an electrician, you're a developer, you're a security person, you want to be tied to the commodity of the whole world. So why wouldn't you want to be part of, directly or indirectly, the world that we're part of, whether you're an evangelist in that world, or you're helping to make the legal agreements, or you're supporting the IT infrastructure, if it were me, I would want to be one of the world's commodities, and this certainly is one of the biggest. Is there a unique skill set that you've developed? Your, your story is phenomenal. All of us didn't go to college for data center education. Right. right? We kind of blended into it in a lot of ways. So is there a unique skill set that you've developed over the years, that's led to where you're at today? Hard-headedness, does that count? Or obnoxiousness? I, I think like one of the things I think that serves us well is one, we're curious. We're curious people. I'm curious about how things work. I'm not really a gadget person, but I am curious. And, and I think you just have to be, the world's changing, our world's changing so fast, so often. It's these two paradigms to me. One is, you're going to have to adapt a lot. There's going to be a lot of failure. There's going to be a lot of change. And so, you know, you got to be able to ride through a fear of failure and just keep trying and changing and doing. And I don't mean like infrastructure, like the data centers collapse. Like we've perfected the art of maintaining critical infrastructure, having operational maturity and excellence so that the systems are up, they stay operational through weather events or pandemics or whatever. But in terms of growing as the world's adjusting and changing, Case in point right now, we're going through this pandemic. How do you operate a data center remotely? Keep it up, service your clients, et cetera. So you've got to have the ability to be curious, um, not have a fear, fear of failure, and, and just be able to pursue solving problems, really being a problem solver. And I think that if you have those things, 
it serves you well in our business. I mean, my journey was IT and figuring out how, you know, I was the first guy who could get the fax machine working. So all of a sudden I was the network administrator. And you just, like a lot of us, you're right, Google was our friend. We figured out how to do it. And, and that's kind of been the key to my career uh, and I'm sure to some degree y'all's as well. And whether that's critical infrastructure, you know, that you said you go to school and get your mechanical or electrical degree, and then you come apply it in our business and you learn some from school, but you've got to apply it and adjust as we continue to be agile. You know, the most sophisticated buyers in the world right now, the five largest companies, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Apple, they're coming to our companies and they're buying services from us and they're pressing our designs. So we have to constantly be adroit in our designs, how we service our customers, where we expand to geographically, how we operate our business. And if you like solving problems and you're curious about that, I think this is the best industry in the world to be in. Yeah, I believe you kind of nailed it on the head. I believe it's more than just education. It's more of a persona or personality of a person whereby you need to have an open mindset, somebody that's willing to learn and evolve really? as technology changes. I, I was asked the other day about what I'd really do for living in a lot of ways, and it's basically like building SimCity or playing Legos. <laughs> <laughs> right? And it's uh, having a mindset that there's a constant evolution in what we do, and how do you build on it? How would be a continuous growth? So you made a great statement earlier regarding data centers working by themselves. COVID-19 is a perfect example of stretching those boundaries because we have not had it a plan of business continuity. And it's not in a plan whereby we've actually put it to test to this degree. So we're actually really stretching the capabilities of the infrastructure. Yeah. So earlier you said that we are in a position to do this whereby mm -hmm. we can run infrastructures remotely. In your experience, what is that boundary? I mean, it's 30 days that we can have nobody go in the data center and everything is fine. Is it 60 days? Is it 90 days? Is it six months? Is it a year? Because you have to have preventive maintenance for equipment, mm -hmm. equipment that's sitting in the data center. So what are you guys doing? What are you guys seeing in that space? And what, in your opinion, is a potential resolution to make sure that we sustain this environment because we don't know how long this is going to last. Right. Uh, I have a, I spent some time in the military and a lot of the people that we hire in our organization, like a lot of organizations, we have a lot of Navy new people, a lot of ex-military people. And one of the things we've learned, just like the military does, is that there are you, know, you have to have operational maturity and operational excellence. So you got to have standard operating procedures, methods of procedure, emergency operating procedures, and then you build, the FBI calls them concentric zones of security, but it's the same idea with operations. And that is, what's the minimal staff needed to continue the mission, right? That's, that's all of our, there's two things, kind of the, the Marines say this, I think the best, but all military units have this, accomplish the mission, protect the troops. Those, those are your two things. You got to accomplish the mission. You got to protect the troops. And I'm probably all great philosophies have some version of that. And so in our case, we do have physical, mechanical, electrical infrastructure. We do have physical boundaries. So we do need security personnel are the right physical people coming and going from the site? Um, do we have the right physical parameter and is it being manned? And, you know, do we have integrity around that? 
our operational excellence in terms of operating the critical infrastructure. Mechanical devices are spinning, electrical devices are transmitting, but we have continuously, this is not new to us, for 15 years that we've been in business and, and bring a lot of excellence to the question, how do we make sure we have the right level of redundancy, not just in the gear, but in the people, the right standards, the right methodology, the right emergency procedures to operate at regular levels, minimal levels, extended levels, because we prep for, I'm sure you guys do as well, chemical spills, implement weather events, et cetera. Now, did any of us plan for a sustained multi-month national, not just geographic pandemic? We might've thought about it, but there's no way to model it. So we feel pretty good in that we do have personnel in there. We are following all of, like everybody else, the CDC guidelines for personal protection. Uh, we've added that to our regular operational excellence. But some of the things that we've done is we have spent the last four or five years really hardening how do we do all the things remote that we can do remote. So health help desk, remote tickets, emergency response where you don't have to have a physical responder there. You've got somebody on Zoom or WebEx or one of the other connectivity uh, platforms. Uh, and we all had already been drilling and planning on those things for many, many years. And so we've put those in place and then continue to evolve them. You do have to have, it's the nature of our beast, a physical presence. So we've got that. And then we've got a bench that we can call on and we rotate people in to make sure everybody stays healthy and we've got the ability because our designs are so similar to rotate people um, in geographic regions if we need to do that and that's how we're doing it now and that's how we're evolving it what's what's so in interesting about you know the the world we find ourselves in now is trying to determine what the the permanence of some of these changes are going to be you know, you guys are in a unique position that, you know, you've tried to automate all these things and build AI into your platforms and really forward thinkers in, in that regard. And I think so many other industries, so many other companies are now going to try to determine whether this becomes the, the, the baseline, you know, it becomes uh, incumbent upon organizations across vertical to essentially be managed remotely. And, and you know, those companies that yeah. were reticent to embrace, you know, um, you know, remote workforces and whatnot, or going to have to evolve or, or they're going to have to kind of go away. And there's going to be this, you know, almost industrial revolution of, you know, remote work where it seems like the traditional office environment, the traditional type of ways in which businesses have been done for the last, you know, 20 or 30 years is going to be significantly disrupted, not just until this pandemic is over but, you know, for the foreseeable future, if not forever. I, I think so. And I think it's a good thing. I mean, we, the three of us have talked many times over the years and, and with our peers and even the people that we, we disagree with, which is a shocker that anybody would disagree with me. But like, what's the business case for 5G? How are you really solve the, who's going to fund it? How, how 5G is going to work within buildings? Like, how do we really not just hype it? and use it for user experiences at stadiums or whatever, but really get in. Here's a fantastic way that's going to happen. Joe, we talk about, I mean, we've spent, as I said, many, many years, and, and in our industry, we spent many years on how do we manage these systems remote? That's not our, that's not our biggest challenge right now. What we're really focusing on 
is because we feel like we're we are well down that path. We've got machine learning going on already. We already have AI. We have we have analytics already built into our platform that we our CTO got deployed four and a half years ago, and we've had thousands of minor and hundreds of major releases on that. So we feel good there, and we're going to keep iterating on that. I mean, we've got 50, 60 some odd developers on that project, and we're a REIT because we knew not about a pandemic, but this is the future on how do we augment our staff to operate our sites like this. But the real key, I think that people are gonna be talking about is how do you have remote workforce and maintain your culture? The key to QTS and most businesses, Apple, whoever, back in the day that made them so successful, wasn't just the elegance of the product, it was the culture of their people. And I've been, I'm employee number 32 at my company. I love this company. It's the longest I've ever worked. There've been a lot of changes, but it's the culture that we have amongst ourselves. And so that's what we want to make sure as we do distance work or whatever, that we are a cohesive unit. We maintain that cohesiveness, whether you're on the business side, selling deals or putting opportunities together, you're on the management side, you're on the infrastructure side, you're on the legal side. We laugh a lot. We're very serious about what we do, but we have a strong DNA in our organization and that's what I think organizations are going to be really trying to figure out. And the healthy ones are going to be those that can keep their culture because working remote just makes sense. I mean, here in Atlanta, our traffic is terrible. You can drive downtown and drive all over the place. Now we've just solved a lot of the congestion problems. So if we could continue to enhance this, but maintain culture, I think that's going to be the difference And those companies. You know, it's not just deploying tools that can't maintain their culture. Their people are going to get picked off because people want to be part of a community it's not just what they do, it's who they do it with. And if they don't feel like they're part of a community that's making a difference, they won't stay. You, that, that's a great point. The way it was done in the past and with the generation prior to us, it was bums in the seat and you can tell people and dictate in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. This is democratizing the workspace and the leaders that are going to be the change agents and that are the ones that are able to inspire people and motivate people and to your point, develop and retain that culture are the ones that are going to be successful. The companies that are not able to do so are going to fall off the, off the sky very quickly here. Yeah. And, but think of how thrilling it is, though. If you want to live in the suburb where you live now, but there's a business opportunity that, you know, in another part of the world or another part of the country, but you can really immerse yourself into it. Right? You're not just occasional call-in in some meeting, but we, we have multiple meetings every day, just like this, virtual meetings. We laugh we're slacking or, you know, using our tools with each other all the time. We're getting serious business done. We're having a fantastic quarter at our organization. But if I can, I can live in, you know, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, let's say, and I want to work in LA or I want to work here in New York City, but I get an opportunity. I, I, I think this is going to be a fantastic opportunity for us. But again, people are going to want to stick to not just where there's a job, but where there's a culture. And so that's that's on the organization to figure out how we project and maintain that while we attract workers from the whole world. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with management styles and, and a recognition that culture is important. You know, you, you think about to expand on, on your point, you think about how 
different uh, industries are going to change and how doctors never really, you know, depending on what we search for pediatricians, just like we search for schools, you know, is, uh, for, right. for, for our kids. Um, and there are, there were a, a significant minority of doctors that embraced telemedicine or doing anything, you know, over FaceTime or email or any of those things. They only wanted to work within the office. And the same with uh, our kids' school. You know, you see the difference between the schools and how they're dealing with remote learning and e-learning. And you take those two things into account and a recognition that, you know, people that live in a particular region, in a particular city within a state or a particular county within within an area just had access to, you know, better doctors or better schools or, or whatever. And the idea that now the best pediatrician that's, let's say, in New York City can have theoretically patients from all over the country, all over the world, you know, where you would typically have thought that something like a pandemic where everyone was going, retreating into their own homes would make the world feel impossibly large because everyone was so separated. There's this Mm -hmm. feeling of we're actually closer to each other. I can just, I can touch Nabil in Kona just by moving my finger a couple of inches. I can be in Atlanta where I understand the bowling alleys are going to open in a couple of days and, uh, and hang out with, uh, with, with David. It's, it's incredible. It is incredible, but I, I think you still have to get permission from Nabil before you, you know, you and I already have an understanding, but before you poke him, make sure he's in agreement. Can, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to make sure to check all my, you got to ask permission. <laughs> no question. <laughs> So, David, what is your definition of a data center? You know, I actually got schooled by uh, Gary Connolly, not in a bad way, in a great way, a few months ago. He's uh, he's the CEO of Host in Ireland. If you haven't had the pleasure of his company, he is one of my favorite people. And he said that he learned, you know, to separate data from center, right? And that uh, he he really, he as he explained it to me, I don't know if you guys know Phil Lawson Shanks, Phil is a good friend of of mine and also an evangelist is where I believe Gary learned this, but he helped me to sort of understand it. And so you've got the center part, which is the physical infrastructure. It's the, you know, it's the walls, it's the, the, the IT stack in there. And then you've got the, the data component of it, which is, you know, in my spaces, I think about data centers. I just think that's where data lives. And traditionally, when we called those, uh, you know, data center started off first for the federal government. I think they the term first got coined in the 60s for the Census Bureau. But anyway, over time, it's come to mean co-location, which is where a third party, com- you know, a company p- puts their gear in somebody's third party uh, infrastructure that they don't own, universities, private enterprise, et cetera. And that was sort of the definition forever. And now we have all of these terms of the micro data center, the edge data center, the core data center. But in my world, that's where either data resides, so it's it's hosted there. So at QTS, I would call us a, primarily a core data center, although we're the edge for somebody. And that's where big hyperscales and large enterprise organizations host their streaming data, their gaming data, their enterprise data, their e-commerce data, or whatever. And folks connect to it and interact with that data. And I, there are emerging whether we call them edge or micro or other data centers, where the transaction is taking place much closer, much further down the stream uh, with folks than, you know, at a core data center like like ours. We're going to be in an NFL city. We're going to be a very, very large data center, as opposed to some of the smaller ones that are going to rural. So for us, it's a data center is that, that conglomeration of infrastructure, staff, 
connectivity. One of the things that hopefully we can get to it on this call that I'm really interested in that I'm spending a lot of time is sort of the connectivity backbone forever. I've been interested in the, the critical infrastructure backbone, but now I'm interested in the where we're going with connectivity uh, because it's so fascinating to me. How, how do you make the data center, you know, what, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you had three or four carriers in your facility, that was more than enough. Now, if you don't have an exchange with at least a dozen or more of the largest and dark fiber and quickly connected to the area carrier hotels, if in fact you're not a carrier hotel with other carriers that can um, you know, do software-defined software networking, a lot of people wouldn't consider you a data center. That term's changed over time. And I, I believe that in probably in the next five or seven years, if you're not connected to satellite infrastructure, if you're not, you know, if you don't have an earth pad or some of these other things, um, people are going to look at you differently. So it's an evolving term. Um, but right now for me, it's where data lives and data, um, data transactions transpire. Yeah, that's a great definition. It, it actually simplifies it a lot of ways. It, it could be an IDF, it could be MDF, it could be a bunch of servers in my, in my garage, and that's a data center in, in layman terms. Yeah, Microsoft just deployed one uh, 2018, I want to say, in the ocean off the coast of California, and they're using, they're trying to use tidal energy to help power, they're using the ocean to help cool, and You've got the data centers in Europe that are that are hosting the data for the um, you know as they're splitting atoms. These are purpose-built, very specific. You know, you could, the data center could be the body, or could be the organ in the body, or you know, connected by the capillaries and the arteries and the nerve. I mean, it's you know, it's all intertwined. I think probably sooner than we expect, it's going to be a large mesh globally for good or ill of all of these interconnected sites much more dynamically than they are now. So you mentioned connectivity. What are, what are your thoughts on connectivity? Where are we headed? What do we need? Uh, what's, what's next in that world? It's almost overwhelming, really. Recently, um, in fact, we're going to be doing a podcast here in the not-too-distant future on low-Earth orbit satellites, whether they're the little the little cube boxes or microsatellites or the the higher you know the higher geosynchronous orbits uh, satellites interestingly enough the one of the things that's sort of shifting so you've got the business side and then you've got the um, performance side so satellites have become so in, relatively speaking so inexpensive to make to launch to put into orbit the performance has gotten so good Again, we're not talking about competing with, you know, a direct fiber connection in your local metro area, but we're looking at organizations that are deploying constellations, whether they're global constellations or statewide constellations or constellations out in the Pacific Ocean on how do we bring connectivity to the rest of the world. Do it well. And so as I see how these organizations are solving these problems, just, just from low Earth orbits, then you've got Google and their Loon project. One of the really interesting things to me about the Google Loon projects is they're using these essentially weather balloons, modified weather balloons that are ru running these orbits. They create an AI that let the weather balloon figure out what's its best pattern. And so now we're getting all this AI data on as the machines figuring out what the weather patterns are better than the people on the ground and making adjustments. And so now we get all this benefit of the, of the AI. You've got Elon Musk with his proposal with Starlink. Whether that happens or not, I don't know. The jury's still out. But all these folks trying to get connectivity up 
Um, and, and even satellite data that says I can get, I can't get a packet through satellites faster from New York to Chicago, but I can get it faster from New York to Singapore. And we can, because of the way that, uh, packet, you know, light travels at the true speed of light in space, as opposed to down on the planet where it runs through interference. And so if the distance is great enough going up over and down is more efficient. So you've got all of that. And then you've got sort of the, you know, the things you've got to be concerned about. How do we secure it? We've got a physical pandemic going on right now with the virus impacting us physically. Well, what happens when the more and more connected we get globally to a virtual virus, right? 70% of the world's powered by Cisco right now. It's what the number that I've heard, at least in the West. Well, what happens if something happens to that code? I love me some Cisco. This is an anti-Cisco. It just says that we could be vulnerable. And so we, what do we do there? And then how do we distribute smaller, more regional way connectivity now? So much of the United States, for example, still on 4G or doesn't even have 4G. So those are the areas that are really, really interesting and curious to me. And then lastly, our internet's still pretty vulnerable. We don't, when we build data centers, we don't have any single points of failure. The internet, if you take out two or three carrier hotels in the New York City metro area or you know a couple other key places in the United States and globally, you're going to take out a significant portion of connectivity for that geographic region. So all of those areas, positive and at risk, are interesting to me. Yeah, it's scary in a lot of ways. You mentioned a couple of very interesting points, and I want to hear your take on this. There have been rumors creating these controversies that 5G has been the root cause of coronavirus. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> could you add on to it? I mean, it would be very beneficial for our users to kind of have an understanding of what 5G really is. What does bandwidth mean and, and, and latency mean in, in the world of computing that we live in today? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the first part of your your sort of your point, which is about the, the um, conspiracy and then and then talk a little bit about the technology proper. Just by the nature of who my, my friends are and people that I associate with, uh, it's not uncommon to have some, look, some conspiracies turn out to be true, right? Whether they're for, for whatever reason. But it seems to me that in order to, to pull off a conspiracy of that size, you'd have to have a huge segment of it technology world kind of be in on it. Yeah, we all know that that's what happened, but nobody's saying anything. And there are so many people that have contrarian interests that if that conspiracy, if there was real evidence for it, that it would it would get shredded. We're so quick to run to social media and news outlets and whatever and say, hey, look, I know, I know something that's being portrayed as true that's not true. So right now, I, I'm not giving a lot of weight to those conspiracies. But here to me is a benefit without getting into the technical details of 5G. Just imagine if you could take, for example, right now today, I just watched uh, last weekend or the weekend before a NASCAR race, a virtual NASCAR race on TV with 40 drivers racing around this track in real time on one of the uh, major television stations. They're broadcasting all of this. 15, 20 years ago, I know because I ran land tournaments, you couldn't do that. And now you literally feel like you're in the cockpit. If you're the driver, if you're the spectator, you feel like it's a sport. And that's just from that generation to now with 5G, the fifth generation. Imagine when we have a hundred plus times the capacity 
and it will be lumpy at first. Like there's, you know, you don't just lean your 5G solution against the problem and it automatically solves it because, you know, these networks, we still have to figure out how to get them to talk together. We still have to figure out how they're going to penetrate inside buildings. But, but one of the things I heard really interesting was Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. I want to say it was this time last year said, look, 20 years from now, we want Apple to be known as, as a healthcare company. And if we're, if we're not, will be very disappointed. I think what he meant was all the wearables that they'll that people will be able to wear, that they'll be, how they'll be able to help human thriving and flourishing by having wearables that will help you with your health. Well, the only way that's really going to work is it, that that um, your systems do an EKG and real-time monitoring your health with the systems that can do that is if you have greater bandwidth. If the EMT pulls up at a car wreck and can do a hologram off of bandwidth to get the physician there to help them triage what's happening to save your child or to help intervene or whatever, is gonna do, we're going to do that with greater bandwidth. So I think as we work to solve the problem of getting bandwidth rolled out, getting the infrastructure built out, the benefits of 5G are so going to outweigh the risks that we're not even going to think about it. For example, we get on airplanes a lot. It is When we invented the airplane, we also invented the airplane crash, right? It happens. And we don't want to, we don't want, we build system after system after system to prevent that from happening. It does still happen, but we still get on airplanes. And the, we can argue that the benefit that airplane and air travel and soon space travel brings to human beings is almost incalculable. So we don't stop. We just build better systems. And I think that's what we're going to do with 5G. There is risk by connecting the world and bringing bandwidth, but it's going to let us build smart cities. It's going to let us build so many great things for ourselves that it's far and away going to outstrip, I think, the inherent risk that it's going to bring as well. When you look at all these science fiction movies, uh, it presents a dark, dark vision, a dark future. Sure. So what I got out of it is like that you're very optimist. It's, it's, there's going to be a lot, a lot of good things that are going to happen with it. Look, we all, we all agree we have to guard against the devil inside, right? I mean, human beings, some of the most educated human beings on earth, we still participate in genocide. We still attack other human beings that we deem as other. Um, we use technology to do that. And we have that in all of the human experience. Do I think we're at risk from robots taking over the world or... No, not really. I don't. First of all, general AI, I think, is far away, which is, you know, sort of the iRobot thing as opposed to narrow AI, which is how do I get a, a specific piece of equipment or tool or whatever to make human-like decisions, right? To be able to infer things and make decisions like a human being would in a very specific, narrow way. I still believe, as my friend Melvin Greer said, that the most powerful tool on the planet is the human brain. But as we build systems, there's no doubt there's risk. I mean, that airplane that I talked about before, 20 years ago, people flew them into buildings in New York City and around the world and shocked the world. So they, they took a tool that's just a tool and they used it for evil in a very you know specific way. But we didn't cancel plane flight. We just changed how we manage it. And I think that's the same way. Will there be things that happen in the future with the technologies we make, sure, we'll guard against them. But the benefit of that technology coming and, and having that database evaluate 400,000 or 40 million MRI scans to help get what is today a fatal and incurable brain disease 
removed from somebody's head? Like, if that's your son or daughter or your loved one, is it going to be worth it? Even though it could be used, you know, in a in a inappropriate way at some point in the future. Yeah. So I'm I would say I'm guardedly optimistic, but I'm also you know a realist. You know, facts on the ground are sometimes tools are used against us. We just need to manage through it. This is really inspiring. I want I want to know like what uh, <laughs> what what gets your juices flowing? What what what's the latest tech that you're looking at? What's the next big yeah. thing that's inspiring you? I mean, is it like autonomous vehicles? Is it? I mean, of course, you talk about bandwidth and latency. Yeah. What's, what's like on a personal note? What's exciting for David McCall? Man, there's so many cool things. I mean. Um, I'm less interested in autonomous cars. I want autonomous drones. I want to be able to walk out the door, presuming I'm going anywhere, get in my drone, and it's an app, just get on it and have it take me somewhere. Although at my size, evidently, there's a weight limit. I got to figure out um, how we're going to solve that. But uh, autonomous drones, I think those are really cool. I mean, those are uh, an article I'm researching now. One of, the, one of my interests are gaming in general, but esports in particular. And people have been talking about this for a while, but the infrastructure needed to support the esport world, uh, you know, you can get their scholarships out there. There are uh, somebody, I just read an article today, this morning, that said um, in 2018, Novak Djokovic, won, when he won Wimbledon, I'm pretty sure it was 2018, won like almost 3 million bucks. A five-man esports team won a tournament, a tournament that year, and they divided up $11 million. Wait, what? What, what, am, I, what, am, I, what am I doing? But to, but to see the infrastructure that's got to support that kind of back to what we were talking about at the beginning with data centers, right? The, the, to, to support the infrastructure, um, to support, because while they, the tournaments are generally held, um, especially those big tournaments, they're on a land, they're not online, but the streaming of them is, the, the, a lot of the participation is, they may have 20,000 people in attendance, but they have 15 million people watching that. What other sport, baseball, football, basketball, cricket, soccer, whatever, is getting that kind of draw? Maybe the Super Bowl, a game? And so that's very interesting to me and how are we going to build the infrastructure for that you know i i don't want to because there's a lot of things there's a lot of things that are interesting to me and they're all related back to connectivity um and the infrastructure needed to support move protect data data gravity which we haven't talked about data weight well what are we going to do with that when data sets get so big you have to move the applications and services to them because you can't you can't move them. It's too much data to move across the wire. All of it. It's just really cool time. Yeah, exciting times. You know yeah. what? I love, I love listening to you guys speak so much. I could do this all day. It, it, it strikes me as, as, as interesting, the fact that there are so many different areas that can be impacted. You take 5G as an example, you know, once you have that type of bandwidth uh, to your device and, you know, you no longer have that limitation there, then, you know, again, like you mentioned, it could be good at, or, or for bad, but the good certainly outweighs the bad. But there are so many things you mentioned. There are so many different uh, initiatives out there. Uh, you, you mentioned reading an article this morning. Where is it that you go? Where is it? Where do you get your information from? Where do you get your, your, your itches scratched? 
Well, it depends. I mean, one of my favorite, related to our industry, one of my favorite places uh, to go is Data Center Frontier. You guys, I know you guys know Rich Miller. Sure. He's got a great staff of people that write for him. I've, I was just reading the other day stuff from earlier in 2019 about robotics and farming and whatever. So whether he writes it or he brings in staff, they've written about esports and a number of other things. So I go there a lot. You know, I just do a lot of, there are people that I'm connected to on my LinkedIn profile, and I go to listen to, I mentioned Phil Lawson Shanks earlier. He just did an article on data gravity. I spoke at PTC earlier this year on data gravity. So I go to the tech blogs. Um, I don't know that I have one in particular. And I just want to hear what my peers are talking about because they're curious people and they want to know. I want to know what they're curious about and what, what is it that they find uh, fascinating. I go to, you know, some of the bigger, like I go to the NASA sites, I go to various national science and institutions, uh, MIT, what are they researching on? Here locally, I go to Georgia Tech, what are they looking at to solve the problems of thermodynamics and heat transfer in the data center that's on the critical side, but I also want to know what they're doing with game theory and how they're applying it to analytics. There's a guy I'll be doing a podcast with, a professor, um, his name is uh, Brett Myers up at uh, Villanova, and he is a professor on on data analytics, but he's also a consultant for the Columbus crew and how they're going to use analytics for uh, one, to teach people how to use analytics, but also how are we using it in sport, everything from recruiting to training to performance in the game. So my mind is kind of all over the place. I just, I, you know, there are a few go-to things that I go to for the industry and my peers that I follow. And then I just go out in the world and, and I get interested in topics and I just start searching. The interwebs seems to work pretty good for me. So, you know, you're obviously, uh, you're a cockeyed optimist when it comes to what's coming down the pipe. You're also uh, a father. I mean, what, what do you think the next generation needs to, to look out for? I mean, what is it that we as parents in a world where these kids have grown up literally from birth with a device in their hand? Uh, I'm old enough to remember the fact that a smartphone was invented. My kids, I try to explain to them that there was a time before these things. I know there was a video going around last year where they put like a 12 or 15 year old in a room and videoed them trying to make a phone call with a rotary phone. Right. Um, and it lasted like 15 minutes and I couldn't do it. They simply right. couldn't do it. So yeah. uh, what are your thoughts on that? What is, uh, I'd love to get the David McCall perspective on uh, the next generation. Wow. I don't, I don't know if it's worth anything. I, here's <laughs> been my experience. I have, I have three daughters and um, they were, they were all probably 15 or 16 as they turned 15 or 16 before they got their first phones and devices. But for, for me with them, and just in general, I love the benefits that the devices bring. So if I, you know, if they're driving, if they're traveling, if they're at sports, if they're doing after school, whatever, and I, and I need them to be able to connect with me or I need to be able to connect with them or, hey, uh, a couple of them work part-time jobs where they're going to college. Can you pick this up at the store or whatever? So they, they bring so, so many great benefits. At the same time, there are a few things we've had to teach them. It's not your diary. That online device is not your diary. And so be careful, you know, people my age, if you made a mistake or you wanted to, as I used to say in a movie, I saw change your stars, you moved, you, you decided, you know what, I don't want to be that person anymore. And I don't mean for nefarious reasons. I mean, we were allowed to make our mistakes usually pretty privately. 
mm-hmm. and 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 say, man, I don't like that character that I displayed, or I, you know, I just don't want to be that person anymore. Well, if you're posting online, as we see celebrities, you know, a joke they told 15 years ago in a different context, as a comedian in a different way, is now brought out today, and we're going to measure it by today's context and try to hold people accountable. And so I try to remind them, don't don't get too personal with that. Number one, number two. Um, you know, I don't think we're very far away and probably some industry is already doing this that are going to start scrubbing social media and social content on who and what and how you post to see if we want to hire you. You know, yeah. if, if and, and it's less about your education and it's more about do these posts seem to indicate to us that Phil's going to be the kind of personality that says the customer is always right. Look at these rants or look at this whatever. <laughs> And that's normal for us as human beings. But if you post it out there, now you got to sort of defend yourself against something from, oh, no, I was, you know, that was then, this is now. And so, and lastly, it's so easy. We've seen this so many times in the last five years, for at least that it's been in my, to come to my attention, how we demonize people, how we demonize ideas, how we, how we rally around a, p- a particular thing, not in a positive way, but in a negative way. And we're really, really quick to, you know, something gets posted and we think that must be true because my fill in the blank, my parent, my celebrity, my whatever posted it, even if they rushed to post it before they had all the facts and the whole world condemns that person back to what we were talking about in the beginning with culture. I, I think there's a, there's an opportunity that if you just see people as this little screen, you know, this little box on the screen and not as real people, it's so easy. And we have to guard ourselves against demonizing people. You know, there are bad ideas. There are ideas that, you know, probably aren't, aren't particularly valuable, but in my opinion, human beings are very valuable <clears throat> and technology i think can lend itself to if you just just if you're distilling human beings down to their you know little tweed or their whatever that um there's there's a temptation then to treat them as less than people that's you know that's the one thing that we caution about don't until you understand them don't hop on and you know behave boorishly it's a, it's an amazing it's an amazing point and i think you know there are there are all these terms thrown out you know keyboard warrior or whatever and and trying to make sure that you know we're instilling in our children this idea that you know whoever you're talking to whether it's on a device or whether it's on the phone or whether you're typing to them is an actual human being and you should interact with them as though they were in front of you i think the more we get to you know this this you know new kind of remote interaction uh world which is you know it's obviously moving in that direction a little bit faster than maybe we thought it would have with uh, with this pandemic it's going to be more important to keep that up what a, what a, what a great point yeah, lead with love. I mean, that sounds silly, I know, and I'm not a pacifist, but I think if we lead with love, and that's not to say don't confront. I, we encourage, I encourage my kids, look, if you need to confront an idea or a person, do it, but first make sure you got the facts. And generally speaking, do it privately first. That starts off better. But anyway, like the, the main thing we've tried to teach them is anything you post out there is going to be forever. And you and I did not have that our first 18 or 20 years. Right. Uh, at least I didn't. And so I was able to, you know, make do some pretty foolish things and I don't have a record of it. At least it's been <laughs> fun that the, the state assures me by now. <laughs> um, uh, for those who have met, uh, met your wife, she shares all of those stories in that first meeting. So everyone gets up to speed uh, on those first 18 years quickly. 
Yeah, she terrifies <laughs> me. She's half Japanese and half Irish, so I have to toe the line. <laughs> Amazing. <clears throat> so David, what advice would you give someone that's wanting to enter into our space? Into the uh, data center space or into my shed? <laughs> if it's my shed, step carefully because it, it's a mess. Man, I just think probably like anything, man, embrace it with a sense of adventure. This is one of the most interesting times. And there's there's scariness out. 15, 20 million people have lost their job as of as of this conversation. There's all kinds of things going on in the world. I, I acknowledge it and nobody is immune from paying attention to that. But it but in our industry, the data center or the connectivity or the technology business, if you think about it, we don't even make forklifts anymore. We make technology and software that's deployed through forklifts. We don't make doorbells anymore. We make technology and software that's deployed through doorbells. Be part of that industry. And that doorbell goes back to a call center. It goes back to a data center. Those That data, that information goes somewhere and people need to make the legal agreements for it or they need to make the, the blockchain smart contracts or they need to make the security protocols or they need to make the infrastructure that... You know, some of the infrastructure is highly redundant. Other infrastructure is very lean and fast. Just embrace it with, you know, follow the, the areas that that are you're naturally inquisitive of, whatever that particular area is, but let it lead you into our industry and, and you'll be part of the commodity of the future. I just think that's the wise thing to do, but just embrace it. Recognize it's going to change. My career, your, your careers, I'm sure, have changed a number of times in this space. But, man, there's no better place to be. That's great. So what do you wish you had known when you started out? Would you have done anything different? Or would you have taken a different route? I'd have bought Amazon in 1997. <laughs> or Yahoo or whatever. Um, I think I would have been less fearful. You know, I, it's so easy now in my 50s to talk about this. I still have fearful moments, but to, to really to embrace the idea of just letting my curiosity take me. What's my natural aptitudes combined with my, with an attitude that I'm describing? Where could it take me? I'm a public speaker in the data center business, and you guys are as well, or you're uh, among other things. I, I would just, for myself, I would just encourage, man, just embrace it and buy Amazon. <laughs> All right, he must be related to Bezos. Uh, what, what, what do you think are some of the positive impacts post-COVID-19? Wow, I think there's a lot of them. One, I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but I think the whole world is going to embrace building out the infrastructure necessary to connect our businesses so that we can do remote business where it makes sense. I think for sure. I think it's bringing to light the risk of, you know, not related to the data center business, but just, you know, we, we've outsourced a lot of things and maybe not everything should be outsourced. You know, I love the Chinese people. I'm not anti-China or Chinese or India or any of those things, but there's a risk just like in the data center business. If you put all of your investment in a vendor, if you put all of your investment in a single supply chain, if that's disrupted, how do you recover? And so that, so I think that one of the positives that we're going to come out from that, I mean, this could have been any, a solar flare EMP, and there's all kinds of things that could have caused us. Staying out of the politics, I just think we're going to have to reevaluate how do we build supply chains that are more robust? How do we build infrastructure that's more robust? I think that's going to be 
hugely uh, positive. The connectivity acceleration that's going to happen, I think, is going to be hugely positive. It's also, you know, there are a lot of people in my industry that are not out of a job, and there are other industries that are. And I think it's going to cause people to say, hmm, you know, I may be a world-class builder, but if I'm building infrastructures that nobody wants built right now, because they're more of a luxury item than a core infrastructure item like a data center, that's part of our strategic advantage as a nation, not just business, I think we'll start attracting more and more excellence from other industries into our industry. I think all of those will be, and I could go on, but that's a good start. Well, so uh, putting politics aside, how, how do we address the supply chain? Is it uh, is, is COVID-19 an opportunity for us to start bringing a lot of this outsourced work that we had moved to China, India, Russia, and other countries? Is it an opportunity for us to start manufacturing locally within the U.S. and having more control over systems, applications, and the infrastructure? Is that the direction that we should lead into? Yes, 100% yes. However, here's the big asterisk. One, I think in my business, like I said in the beginning, um, we deal with some of the, the largest buyers on earth. And I believe that most very large organizations are going to want to know what's your supply chain look like, you know, whether wh- whatever it is in, in whatever way. And if you've got all of your, you know, one of the great things about China and India, is they have the largest and second largest, I believe, workforces on earth. And there's an economy of scale and there's, there's so many advantages, but it also comes with risk. And so what do we do? Do we put, do, do, you know, how much do we have within our borders that makes sense? And how much do we have outside of our borders? I don't know what that exact formula is, but I, I think the economics from our customers are going to drive all of us in all industry to figuring that out, uh, including in those countries to figuring that out. The second thing is the risk is if we don't, our governments will. That's the single biggest risk to our industry, to any industry is regulation far and away. And I'm not I'm not anti-regulation, but we've seen that so many times where government in response to strategic interests or whatever, they come in and they bring regulation. And now we you know, I got to figure out how we deal with that. I think that if we solve the problem for ourselves first, that is a much better way to do it with partnership of our customers than having governments around the world, you know, attempt to solve it for us. We we want as little, you know, we want to solve the problem first, minimize supply chain risk, and be prepared strategically because data centers are strategic, and you know, it's not just commerce. I mean, we are a strategic part of any national government. And we want to make sure that we can keep them operational staffed, operational, supplied, repaired. Um, so we're going to need to solve these problems. Our organization's working on that right now. I'm sure many are to get ahead of the curve before state, local, and national agencies uh, begin imposing uh, regulations on top of us. Is there any conversation with a data center guy that does not end with the answer is hybrid. The answer is, you know, trying to determine how much of that stuff you can maintain yourself with the ability to leverage, you know, other other resources uh, when necessary and provide effective accountability for, for your customers, for your services and not put all your eggs um, in one basket. So, Phil, yes. I feel like you're setting me up because, you know, every conversation we have ends with where's the buffet. Every single one. <laughs> what a perfect, like if we had to find a tagline for for this particular podcast, where's the buffet? We where's found the it. Buffet? It found it. 
David, thank you very much. It has been great. Thank you for taking the time to join us. My great pleasure. You know I love you too, uh, in spite of your both very best efforts to give me a hard time. I think very highly of you. Thank you for letting me come on today. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.